Well, first of all, can I just say thank you to everyone that, that has come to support me. Uh, Stony Brook um, friends and family. It means a lot to me you guys are here. And uh, because I'm Mr. Harrison to you, I, I do have a school teacher mindset. And today I wanted to try to do something creative with the triumphal entry. So as um, I've been uh, planning, I named my sermon today, Roll Out the Red Carpet. The glitz, the glamour. Every spring, hundreds of Hollywood stars gather for various award shows. Very few slip in the back door. Instead, they make their entrance, usually chauffeured in by a limousine or a party bus. And when they arrive, they walk down the long, long red carpet, smiling at the flashing cameras, trying to avoid the paparazzi, and waving to the screaming fans in the stands, not to mention showing off the latest fashion trends and designer clothing, chatting with the reporters. But some go to great, great lengths just to be noticed. Contrast that with Jesus and his ministry. To the man healed of leprosy in Matthew 8, he said, See that you don't tell anyone. To the two blind men he healed in Matthew 9, he warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. And in Mark 1, a demon-possessed man in Capernaum yelled out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. To which Jesus replied, Shh, be quiet. See, Jesus often shows not to be in the limelight. In fact, most of Jesus' ministry happened outside of the capital city, excuse me, the capital city, away from the big, buzzing, bright lights of Jerusalem, and instead occurred in small towns and villages along the way, until today. Luke 19, 28 through 40 is our text today, so if you have your Bibles and you would open, I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version. Um, if not, on my, on my handout, uh, you can just follow along, and it'll be up on the screen. And I apo- I'm going to apologize. Neil says never to apologize, but I have what's called a Mac. You guys know the Mac, right? And that's Keynote PowerPoint, but our church only runs PowerPoint, so I tried to make sure everything was fitting and accommodating, but if something isn't re- readable, it's because of the, the, the breakover, like trying to get it over. It's the crossover. All right. So let's read this together, Luke 19, 28 through 40. I'm not going to make you stand. I just want you to follow along with me. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those, who were sent, excuse me, so those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives... The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Let's pray. Father God, may your glory be shown today, Lord. May your fame 
be great in this room, Lord. May you take my inadequacies, Lord, the things that I've tried to get together and organize, Lord, and may you make them sweet-sounding, Lord. May they come across as truth, Lord. May we learn something new and be challenged, Father, by this day, Palm Sunday. Just be with me now as I speak, as you speak through me, Father God. Allow me to glorify you in all that I say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke 19, 28 through 40 sets our scene. This passage contains the first event in Christ's final week, the event known as the triumphal entry. So let's look at the pre-show before the red carpet. Let's start with our first verse. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. All right, so the first question to ask of this text is, when he said what? What did he say? Well, just prior to this event, Jesus before the red carpet, had told the parable of the Minas in verses 11 through 27. It conveyed a nobleman who went to a faraway land to be crowned king. As the king was leaving, he gave ten Minas, or four months' wage, to ten of his servants and told them to invest it for him while he was gone. The parable tells us about three of these servants. It tells us what they did with their money and how the master rewarded them when he returned as king. Many of you know the story. But see, that was the parable Jesus had just finished telling his disciples. So the question remained, were they going to carry out their business and serve him faithfully until he returns? And the they was the disciples he had been speaking to. It's ironic to think that his disciples are thinking to themselves as they follow him. Here we go. He's just told us a sweet parable about being crowned king. And now we're going with him to the royal city, the capital of Israel, the center of entertainment, culture, and trade, Jerusalem. Let me tell you about the L.A. of Israel. Look at the parallels between Jerusalem and Los Angeles to get a picture of where Jesus was going to make his big debut. This according to Wikipedia. Jerusalem is a city of overwhelming emotions, a city, that prom- excuse me, a city that promises a religious and spiritual experience, excitement and pleasure, interesting tours and entertaining adventures. Here alongside Jerusalem's fascinating historic and archaeological sites, there are amazingly modern tourist attractions for all lovers of culture, the arts, theater, and music, not to mention architecture and gastronomic delights. How about the next slide? Our very own city of Los Angeles. A world center of business, international trade, entertainment, culture, media, fashion, science, technology, and education. As the home base of Hollywood, it is known as the entertainment capital of the world. Leading the world in the creation of motion pictures, television production, video games. I know you guys like that one, video games, right? Recorded music. But the importance of the entertainment business to the city has led so many celebrities to call Los Angeles and its surrounding suburbs their home. Now surely, you have to be able to paint in your mind and see some similarities of the two cities so that you can get a better grasp of where Jesus was finally going to reveal himself once and for all as the coming Messiah. This time, it would be inevitable to avoid the limelight. You see, Jesus tried to avoid the huge city with tons of people until now. The disciples thought to themselves again, Jesus is going to be crowned king. It seems to me, folks, that the disciples missed the bigger lesson of Jesus' parable. And we would soon learn that their expectations were all but premeditated by their own selfish nature and their desire 
to see a show, quote-unquote, where their king would be wooed and awed by the crowd and, more importantly, recognized as the victor over all, overthrowing the Roman Empire. That's what they wanted. That's what they thought they were getting because they had just heard this parable talking about the king being crowned and they thought, well, surely that's Jesus. Jeremy Myers in his article, Till He Comes, says this. This is very interesting. I want you to listen. A triumphal entry would be scripted to entertain and exaggerate the pride of one's character. A triumphal entry would be what the Jews were looking for. A triumphal entry would have included Jesus defeating Satan and overthrowing the Roman domination of Israel. A triumphal entry would have had Jesus set up as king and ruler and judge. None of those things, as we're going to continue to read today, really happen. Let's see what Jesus does instead. In verse... In verses 29 through 34, he gives his disciples some very odd instructions. And it's here, as he's getting ready for the red carpet, he has to choose his mode of transportation. Follow along with me as I read verses 29 through 34. And it came to pass, when he came near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Okay, first of all, you have to be wondering yourself, does Jesus indeed No, there will be a specific young donkey tied in this town nearby. Does he? Well, I've come to the conclusion of yes. I'm sure he does know that, supernaturally, since he is fully man and fully God. But on the other hand, Jesus probably has friends in many, many towns where he stayed before, where he's visited, who have told him, Jesus, if you need anything, anything, come ask me. We'll take care of you. A little bit of southern warm hospitality, right? Remember, Bethany is the town where Jesus' friends lived. Lazarus, Martha, Mary, all at whose house he was always welcome at. Therefore, we know that Jesus is not instructing his disciples to go engage in robbery or steal. He's not engaging them in grand theft donkey, per se. But merely is taking up his friends on their long-standing offers and their warm hospitality, as I've mentioned. Notice that once the disciples say, the Lord needs it, what happens? There is no further argument. If you read the text again, they don't say, okay, but I need to go talk to Jesus about this first and get his approval and sign a permission slip. None of that. There is no arguing. The owners are happy, probably even privileged, to have the Lord use their possessions their mode of transportation for carrying out his work, his mission, and his glory. So they bring him a never-before-ridden donkey. The fact that the colt had never been ridden makes it specially suited for sacred purposes. Borrowing this specific donkey might seem strange. However, it was actually a fairly common practice in that day. Listen to what one commentary says on borrowing a donkey. I'm kind of new to this donkey thing, so I wanted to learn some about it. When a royal emissary arrived in town, 
They would often borrow or commandeer a mount to ride into town on. It was considered a privilege to have your mount used by the king or the prince or the general or the famous teacher who was riding into town that day. The interesting thing, however, is that most often the royal emissary found the most beautiful and proud stallion in the city to ride in on. This shows victory and conquest. All right. So stay with me because it's going to get good now. If Jesus is supposed to be making his big entrance, shouldn't he have opted for something that shows power and status to set him apart? I mean, arrive in style, right? Now, if you can't see those, we've got the Ferrari up there. We've got the Lambo. That's short for Lamborghini. And a presidential stretch on the right-hand side. Those, those are just three of the many that I found of how people ride in style to awards, to events, people of noble character, the president, A-listed celebrities. And yet our A-listed celebrity, Jesus Christ before the red carpet, he shows up on a donkey. He shows up on a donkey. Do you think that any of them, any of, any of the A-listed celebrities are riding in on a Schwinn 10-speed or even a Honda for that matter? No offense to any of you Honda owners. I had one myself. Listen to this blurb found on Facebook. I know. It's a, it's a really uh, formidable source, I know. By aristocrat limos. Vanity, excuse me, Vanity Fair reports that between 800 and 1,000 vehicles roll toward the Kodak Theater on Oscar night. Rod Rave with Empire CLS Limousine, which provides the most limos for the stars, tells Vanity Fair, each of our regular clients usually goes with a specific requested vehicle, their vehicle and their chauffeur. And the big trend, yes, environmentally conscious vehicles. So that means even sports utility vehicles are leaning toward the hybrid choices. I don't know if you guys noticed, but $4.25 for gas on the drive today. Rave tells the magazine that people also can expect to see luxury hybrid sedans like the new Mercedes S400 or the Lexus 600H. Just so you know, I don't know what any of that means. I don't know anything about cars. My neighbor was telling me that a really cool car is called a whip, but I didn't want to use that because I didn't know what I was talking about. Okay? But nonetheless, these are their whips. Okay? And Jesus' whip is a colt, a foal, a never-used-ridden-before donkey. A never-ridden-before donkey. There was no historical Lexus 600H, or even a white stallion, for that matter. Church, the donkey Jesus chose for transportation—excuse me transportation was just the opposite, symbolizing humility and peace. Christ did not want to enter Jerusalem riding a horse. He did not wear a crown, carry a sword, as most royal members— would have done or expected him to do. The ride on the colt resembled the events of 1 Kings 133, in which David had made the new king Solomon ride to Gihon on a mule. That's going to be hard to read, so I'm going to read it for you. The king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. You know what's even more interesting to point out? Is that in Zechariah, his prophecy in chapters 9, 9 through 10, the humble, gentle king that enters into Jerusalem is the same king who will later and eventually defeat chariots and war horses and restore peace and hope to the nations. 
Zechariah 9, 9-10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Picture that story. That's a little different than the donkey. If you read throughout Revelations, there's all sorts of pictures of Jesus coming back. And he's going to come back. And he's going to be that victor that we're looking for. But right now, that's not his mission. When Jesus indicates to his disciples that he should ride on a donkey that no one had ever ridden before, that's his way of revealing openly and humbly that he is the Messiah. This is important because we're going to see that the people thought, Messiah, okay, we want a military Messiah. Someone who's going to judge, conquer, rule. But Christ had a different approach and wanted them to see him differently. So riding in on a donkey, this was his way of saying, I come in peace. Listen to what Myers points out. He says, he came not to destroy, but to create. Not to condemn, but to help. Not in the might of arms, but in the strength of love. Jesus was making a claim. And the multitudes had recognized one. But it wasn't the one Christ was trying to make. Verse 36 speaks of how Jesus was treated. And yet, now we come to the red carpet treatment. Rolling out the red carpet. Follow along with me, verses 35 and 36. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. The spreading of garments represents royal homage, indicating that a dignitary or someone of nobility was being greeted. And this we're reminded of in 2 Kings 9, 12 through 13. It says, And they said, A lie, tell us now. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. And they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. Jehu is king. The minute they knew that Jehu was king, they immediately fell prostrate to the ground with garments on the ground showing them their tribute, paying homage to him. Now, Jehu is just one example of this clothing-spreading treatment. Nonetheless, it was a sign of paying tribute to one of status and power. It was like rolling out the red carpet today. Everybody knows what that is. We can get a great picture of what that looks like. By laying down their cloaks, they were giving Jesus a kingly welcome. Think about if we walked in today and there was a red carpet you'd start thinking like, what's going on? Is someone coming? Who are we getting ready for? But see, church, we should be always ready for Jesus and entering him. And we're going to continue to talk about that as we keep moving through the red carpet treatment. But I want you to keep that in mind as we continue to to see what the significance of the red carpet was. Today, whenever you watch an award ceremony or you watch the news where the president is entering or exiting a building, there's a red carpet laid out. A red carpet is used frequently for all types of award shows, music ceremonies, and dignitaries. But even more importantly, the red carpet is a sign of honoring a guest that enters a building or an event. Commonly used at award shows, the red carpet is where all the stars and guests stand for fans and photographers to see them. 
Being on the red carpet places them separate from everyone else. Being on the red carpet makes them separate from everyone else. Jesus should be lifted high. He should be separate from anything else in our life. Jesus was receiving the red carpet treatment, just like celebrities today do. But he kept on, and, and the disciples and the followers and the pilgrims that were on their way, they kept spreading their cloaks on the road to pay tribute to him. And just like today's red carpet, his followers would shout praises to him. They would wave their branches. Many gospel accounts say they, they wave branches. Some say they put the branches down on the ground. Nonetheless, there was a celebration going on. And Jesus was being singled out as the one that they were entering and worshiping, trying to be noticed by Jesus the followers would continue to look at him. Let's see what happens next to Jesus as he's parading in on a donkey followed by his adoring crowd. Now we get to, at the red carpet, once you get there, you've got your screaming crowds. Follow along with me in verse 37. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They were praising him for the miracles that he'd already done. All of the disciples and followers were most likely here for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The verse mentions a multitude, but I didn't really know what that meant, so I had to look that up. According to the research of Myers, this is what it says. In A.D. 60, that was 30 years after this event, a Roman governor took a census of the number of lambs that was slain in Jerusalem during this week, and found that it was close to 250,000 lambs. Jewish law stated that there must be a minimum of 10 people for each lamb. So during this time, math majors, there would be at least 2.5 million people in or around the city of Jerusalem. Now that's a multitude. I've been to some sporting events with 40,000. I've been to some concerts with 40,000, 50,000. And it takes me three hours to get out of the parking lot. You can only imagine the traffic that's going on back then, right? The people traveling in and out. Crazy amounts of fans and people there adoring him, shouting, Hosanna. It seems that this was the perfect time for Jesus to reveal himself. As we just learned, the majority of the Jewish people were either on their way or already in Jerusalem for Passover. Being from Galilee, they had seen or heard about many of his miracles and most of his teachings. And Jesus usually and normally would avoid big crowds, big, huge, buzzing places like this. So he was relatively unknown there. They didn't all know who he was yet. This was his chance to make his big debut. And just like the screaming crowds, the screaming crowds turn into flashing cameras and shout-outs. Justin, I love you. Michael, how are you? Come take a picture with me. That's the crowds we see today. For some of you. I know, not all of you. But that's what we see today. Back in the day, there may have not been flashing cameras and posters to represent their favorite king, per se. But crowds of people still express their love and adoration for him by shouting praises, using palm branches, Whatever they had on them, whatever they could use, whatever was in the vicinity, they waved it, they moved it, they signaled it, whatever they had to do to show their adoration 
for the one and only Messiah that was coming into Jerusalem. And multitudes are cheering for him here, singing and shouting, Hosanna! In the book of Psalms, Hosanna means save us, O God. It means save us, O God. And as they approached Jerusalem, they were singing certain psalms. Actually, they're called the Psalms of Ascents. And they started all the way back in Psalm 112. And if you go back and look through your Bible and look through the Psalms, Psalm 112, all the way up to 118, as they're kind of going through the dirt road, heading towards the last steps into Jerusalem, by the time they get to Psalm, uh, get to the front, they're now saying, Hosanna, blessed be the King, in the name of the Lord. It's kind of cool since we sing that first song forever. God is faithful. Your love and your mercy endure forever. Listen to what this psalm says right here. Psalm 118, 22 through 29 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Right? This is the day the Lord has made, kids. That's not rejoicing. Come on. This is the day the Lord has made. Now, at Stony Brook, every morning we say, this is the day the Lord has made, or we say something to that effect, and the kids would have to come back with, I will rejoice and be glad in it. The people were rejoicing over and over. This is the day the Lord has made. We, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. What? His love endures forever. We need to give God thanks and praise, for his love endures forever. It's an unconditional love. We hear this, and we immediately think, okay, the disciples have to be recognizing Christ's claim to be the Messiah, right? At this point, they've, they've heard, they're singing these psalms, they know what Jesus is here to do, they've got to be there, right? Unfortunately, as we read verse 38 again, they were solely only interested in the king that would overthrow the Roman Empire and save them. They were focused on, save us, O God! What were these final words they would sing in verse 38 as they walked the final steps to Jerusalem? As I've mentioned before, they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Psalm 118 said, Blessed is He. So they switched it. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Can you imagine as you approach the holy city of Jerusalem, take a, take a minute and just pretend you're there in that crowd, shouting and screaming. You've got your camera. You've got your sign that says, Yay, Jesus. Whatever it is that you're going to do to show him your love and, and your adoration for him. And you enter as you're, as you're taking those last steps to the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate one of the most holy days of the year on the Jewish calendar. Thousands of people greeting you and joining with you in song. I can't help, and get, I can't help but get excited, guys. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of heaven. This is a picture of entering into the gate with our friends, with our family, with our believers in Christ, people that we love, people that we have the same commonalities with, people that lift the name of Jesus high. They're going to be singing. We're going to be joining in with one song, praising Him and singing to Him. Now, I'm especially excited about this because I'm a worship leader and I love music. 
But I couldn't stop but just have that moment for a second and just have you picture that. Think about that. Think about the crowds and what they're seeing and what's going on and the senses and the things that are, that are, that are, that are just overtaking them. They sing, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This reveals they wanted a king. So while the singing was not out of the ordinary, the cult, the clothes, the palm branches, and even the song, changing the words to king, those were out of the ordinary. These things were signs of royalty. The crowds revealed through this that they wanted the ruler, the judge, the king. They wanted a warrior. Summon the battle for them. But Jesus is on a donkey coming in peace. It's the total opposite. Today we see a similar story where crowds follow. They obsess, they cry over, and even stalk their favorite celebs. Right? Listen to what the HollywoodHotspot.com has to say about today's crowds and their adoration of one teenage heartthrob. Hundreds of screaming and crying girls surrounded his hotel in Paris, hoping to get an up-close and personal glimpse of the teen heartthrob. Security guards did their best to try and maintain order as throngs of screaming girls with cameras in hand mobbed the singer's tour bus. In spite of all the security, the girls seemed happy that they were able to get a close-up and personal look at their favorite pop star. Some of the girls can be seen burying their faces in their hands while consoling each other as the tears roll down their face. I'm a little bit being silly right now because when we come to worship the Lord, are we being like that? Are we getting emotional and fired up and excited? Are we getting to a place where it's like, ah! Right? Can you guys notice in the background? I've got it in the background. Who is it? Who are we talking about? The Biebs, Justin Bieber. The hottest thing out there right now. Right? Now, this is just one example of many. Many of you are like, I can't identify with you. Marion Fisher is like, I definitely can't identify with Justin Bieber. Stay with me, Marion. Okay? She's like, I don't know where you're going with this. Okay. But the point is that we all have people in our lives, whether it's a celebrity, whether it's a musician, whether it's a sports figure, an author, a speaker, someone that we adore, someone that we're a fan of. We do, right? We approach, and and my question to you is, do we approach Jesus, the Messiah, in our lives the way we approach whoever that person is, fill in the blank, that we're a fan of? Do we praise and glorify Jesus with the same electrifying energy and awe that he rightfully deserves? This is me getting a little bit of a push in there as the worship leader to say, it's time to worship. I want to worship. When I'm here on Sunday, I'm here to help lead you guys into a time of worship. And I know we come through these doors sometimes beaten and broken. And all we want is just a place to sit down. And I get it, but I'm overjoyed. And my heart, as I read the scriptures and the Psalms, says that I need to give thanks to the Lord, for He is good as love endures forever. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Lift up His name. Extol Him with praise. Laud Him with honor. These things are the things that we need to do for our risen Christ. And as we move towards Easter and the night of worship, I'm not going to get any, any doler. I'm going to get more and more excited. You know, I had a chance this, this past Tuesday to go see Chris Tomlin. Those of you that are my Facebook friends, um, I uh, posted a few of my uh, videos. It's just flip video. But if you could just go on my Facebook and see 
40,000 people worshiping Jesus Christ. It would blow your mind. I know it's a glimpse of heaven. I know because I walk in there and go, right on. These people love Jesus just as much as I do. I'm not asking everyone to cry and to raise their hand. That's not what I'm asking for. What I'm asking for you is to make sure that your heart is overwhelmed with joy when you worship the Lord. That you're not just singing the words. That you're not just going through the motions. God doesn't want us. He doesn't want us to give Him casual worship. He wants us to give Him everything. It says to love the Lord of God with all your mind, your heart, your soul, and your strength. Completely off my notes right now. See how I just get fired up right there? Okay. Do we praise and glorify Jesus with the same electrifying energy and awe that he rightfully deserves? Something to truly think about as we finish off with verses 39 and 40. Now, the sound's increasing. It's getting extremely louder. The enthusiasm of building with the carpet of clothing, branches on the dirt road, crowds of singers, and here comes who? The Pharisees, who are in the crowd. They're scowling. They're angry, they're upset, and they're probably very flustered. In fact, as we learn from verse 39, they're offended and can't suppress their discontentment. Verse 39 and following. The Pharisees, or the persistent paparazzi. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees have their run-in after run-in after run-in with Jesus. And they can't stand him. In fact, if you read verse 47 of Luke... You'll know they're looking for ways to expose him and to kill him. Guys, this is similar today with the celebrities' run-ins with the paparazzi. The Pharisees were out to destroy Jesus, whether that be harassing, confronting, or exposing. They would stop at nothing until he was finally done away with. I find this interesting to today's parallel of our stars, or we call them the stars. They might not be stars in our eyes. Listen to what these articles say about the paparazzi today. If you don't know what the paparazzi is, you'll get a good glimpse right here. Paparazzi are photographers who tirelessly hunt celebrities, public figures, and their families for the opportunity to photograph them in candid, unflattering, and at times compromising moments. What began as simple street photography is now a high-stakes game of cat and mouse that plays out in the everyday lives of the paparazzi's celebrity prey goes on to say, In recent years, however, the paparazzi have become increasingly more persistent in their pursuit of candid star shots, with the hounding and the haunting amounting to persecution in many cases. I found that ironic. Persecution. They're saying on some Hollywood page that I found this on that persecution is something that they deal with, the celebrities. Do you think Jesus dealt with persecution? Do you think we as Christians deal with persecution? Interesting. The Pharisees, they don't have cameras to photograph. They're not trying to, to catch Jesus in any unflattering... But they are trying to catch Jesus in unflattering moments. And, they, and they, they did tirelessly and persistently hunt down their public figure, Jesus. The famous one. In a high-stakes game of cat and mouse. Isn't it interesting that the paparazzi sell their photographs and information to the tabloids today for a high price to expose whatever that specific or designated celebrity is that their mission is for? And in the process, make themselves richer for doing it? Who does that remind me of? Who does that remind us of in the Bible? <sighs> Ironic, don't you think? Since Judas, one of Jesus' beloved twelve, he fell into that same exact paparazzi category. 
we are reminded as we read ahead in Luke 22, 3 through 5. 22, 3 through 5 says, says, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. This is just one example. Look how Jesus responds to the Pharisees' criticism and disdain. Verse 40, as we close with this verse. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. If my disciples, if my followers, if all the multitudes aren't speaking and shouting my name, my creation will shout out instead. It's inevitable. It is implied that Jesus is saying that if even his disciples, his followers, they're silent and swayed by the Pharisees, the rocks themselves would immediately cry out. I want to make mention of two things here, and then I'll be wrapping up with my closing. Two things I want to make mention of here. Praise is sometimes attributed to objects, animals, and specifically creation, as I spoke to my youth group on Wednesday, talking about how creation plays effect in God's symphony as we worship Him. Creation. The waves crashing. The stars turning on their axis. The angels singing. This is just one of many psalms that talk about creation, worshiping Jesus. Psalm 98, 7-9. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For He is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Creation will cry out to Jesus. And secondly, in the Old Testament, and this was something new to me that I hadn't learned, but I found in my Bible, in my study Bible, stones have bore witness when sins have been committed. Rocks, stones, have bore witness when a sin has been committed. And many, in the sense, a sin of not offering praise when praise is rightfully due. Joshua 24, 27 says, And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to, for us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. Folks, there was no keeping quiet on this day in history. Jesus wanted his own people to recognize him for who he was, but they did not. Some of them undoubtedly thought that he was the promised Messiah, but they all wanted the Messiah who would rule and judge and set up an earthly kingdom, but he was not. In all likelihood, not one of them understood what kind of Messiah he had really come to be. All history has pointed toward this single spectacular event when the Messiah publicly would present himself to the nation. Yet they did not recognize him. The disciples we learn later, and as we'll learn as we continue to go through um, the, the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, they never really understand until he does those things, until they understand that he has to suffer for what he's doing. And it was everywhere in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy I read of him telling what was going to happen on this specific day on the Jewish calendar. It was plain before their eyes. He'd explained it. And he had symbolized it by riding it on a donkey. Symbol of peace and humility, not victory and conquest. So what can we learn today? I want to leave you with four practical acting tips of being a fanatic for the one and true and only celebrity in our life, the famous one, Jesus Christ. Number one, 
In our walk with Christ, as we continue on our journey, we should opt for riding a donkey. I know it sounds silly, but we should opt for riding the donkey instead of being chauffeured in a limo. What do I mean by this? To bring glory to Jesus and further our relationship with him means to operate out of humility and love and peace instead of pride and status and selfishness. Ride the donkey. Don't be chauffeured in a limo. Show your humility. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Very simple verse to leave with. Number two. We should be consistently giving Jesus the red carpet treatment. He should always be feared, revered, and paid tribute to by laying down our lives. Just like they laid down their garments, we should lay down our lives and give him all our possessions in order to follow him. We need to surrender things to him today. We need to give him those things over. We should welcome him at times, and he should be the center. We should welcome him at all times, excuse me, and he should be the center of everything we do. Oh, Christ, be the center of our lives. Be the place we fix our eyes. Be the center of our life. Every one of the songs that they sang today was purposeful and meaningful to what I was going to be preaching on today. And I hope that you leave here thinking about these things, thinking about Jesus being the center of your life. This is also a simple verse to know. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him, what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And guys, in regards to being those adoring, screaming fans, we should be following Jesus everywhere we go. It should be like an ongoing road trip. Shouting his name, lifting our voices in praise, taking snapshots of who his character is, reflecting on the stories that he's given for our lives so that we may be fanatics of the one and only true Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17, I'm sure many of you have heard this one as well. And whatever you do in the word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And finally, If you don't remember anything, remember this silly parallel. Number four, avoid the pavarazzis of your lives. They're going to expose you. And they're going to expose Jesus. They're going to refute him. They're going to make a mockery out of him. And push you to compromising things. This is my fear. Always working in youth ministry. This is my fear that people are going to be swayed by other ideologies, other philosophies, even other religions. Because they sound okay. Because they kind of are the same. Know what you believe and be able to defend it. First Peter says, be ready to give an answer to anyone who needs to know the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. You know, the kids came up and they shared um, a little bit about what they learned and I know a lot of them talked about worship and that really was a huge part. But what we've done since we've come back as we've been talking about, from milk to meat. We are no longer babies in this youth group. They have come, some of them starting in 8th grade, and they are now seniors. And my time with them is going to be up real soon. And they're going to need to be able to go out into the world, wherever they are, whether it's New York or UCLA, or anywhere in between. And they're going to be able to, they need to be able to divide and know exactly when it's truth and when it's not truth. 
And I give you the same challenge today. Avoid people in your lives who are going to take you away from coming to church. Avoid people in your lives who are going to take you away from reading your Bible. Don't, I'm not saying that you can't hang out, but don't let them sway you. You're going to be uh, growing less and less of who Christ is intending you to be in your faith. Avoid the paparazzis of your lives. They're evil, conniving, and they will continue to hunt and prey on you if you give them an opportunity to run into you. Romans 1.16. You guys know it. Kids, you know it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? The power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I always like to, to, to close with one last song. We sang it earlier. You are the Lord, the famous one. The famous one. Great is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare you're glorious. You're glorious. Great is your fame beyond the earth. Fix your eyes on Jesus today. Make him be the center of your lives. Take something from today, something of how we can express our love and our gratitude towards him through our prayer life, our praise life, and our people life, for that matter. We're here to edify and, and, and build one another up. And that's my prayer for you guys. I'm so grateful that I got to share today. Thank you for sharing in my heart. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we do come to you right now, Lord. We honor you and glorify you, and we lift your name on high, Lord. This is a special day set apart, Lord. To shout, Hosanna, blessed be the King, blessed be the name of the Lord, Lord. And I just ask now, God, that we would do these things that you've called us to do, Lord. That we would arrive at you, Lord, and meet you and encounter you with humility and love and peace, Lord. That we would surrender our lives to you, Lord. That we would cheer and be your biggest fans, Lord, through our worship, through our prayer, through our praises. God, and most importantly, Lord, there's a spiritual battle going on there in this world today, Lord. There's a lot of things that are happening. Our hearts are heavy, God, and I pray that we would use the spiritual armor, that we would use the praises and the prayers and the experiences of people in this room to lift ourselves up and encourage us so that we can fight and we can avoid the paparazzi in our lives. Lord, we give you the glory and honor today, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.